We're going to start in Isaiah 13 today. And if you're, if you're just reading the book of Isaiah, it can get really crazy. Because he's yelling at these people, and he's yelling at these people. Oh, here's a little sweet little thing. Oh, and then he's yelling at these people. And then the people that he said that little sweet thing to, and well, now we're going to dash all their babies on the rocks. And then you're like, what in the world? And it just goes from extremely violent to blessing. And here's my advice for how to read the book of Isaiah. So let's say you're going to read, say you're going to study chapters 13 through 20. You could read it straight through 13 to 20 and just try to, it's kind of a game of endurance, right? You're kind of like, I would really rather read the book of Leviticus. And uh, it's just difficult. That was a joke. Nobody ever wants to read Leviticus, right? Break it down into little parts. And if you've got a study Bible that has headings, even break it into those headings. So, like, I have an ESV study Bible. And chapter 13, it says the judgment of Babylon above it, like a little heading. And it says that through all of chapter 13. But then in chapter 14, it says the restoration of Jacob. So treat that as its own thing. Don't treat 13 and 14 and think that you have to go on and on. Just read 13 all by itself. This is the judgment of Babylon. And read it through and stop. And then maybe come back and read it again. So you've got that little nugget. Um, this is what happens in our house. We have dinner, and Grace makes her plate. And she makes her plate look like something out of a magazine. And the green beans are all over here, and the sliced carrots are all over here. And you know how they have the little ridges where they're sliced? They're all in the same direction. I'm exaggerating. They aren't really. And she's got a roasted chicken over here, and it's got the sauce on top, but the sauce does not run into the mashed potatoes, the green beans, or the carrots. Do you know how I eat that meal? I lay down the mashed potatoes, and I spread it flat like a pancake. That is my palate. <laughs> then come the green beans, and the carrots, and the chicken, and I cut up, with, and it's all just this mound, Right? Same thing happens at Denny's. I'll take a grand slam, but I want it all on one plate in a tower with gravy on top. So when you read Isaiah, read it like Grace eats. <laughs> Keep that stuff separate. Don't let your gravy from your chicken touch your green beans. You read chapter 13, chapter 13 all by itself. Don't go on to 14 until you're ready. So you're ready to go on to it. So with that said, with that warning, let's talk about 13. These are judgments against Babylon. And uh, throughout the scripture, Babylon is just bad. The, you know, there's some places where yeast will be mentioned in the Old Testament. And it's like, oh, yeast is bad. But then all of a sudden, Jesus uses yeast he says the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that works into dough and it spreads all the way through. And you're like, oh, yeast isn't all bad. Babylon is all bad. There's no good reference of Babylon at all. Uh, from start to finish, the first time you hear about Babylon is the Tower of Babel, which is built to rebel against God. And that is, um, you know, 
everything got wiped out by the flood, and then the Tower of Babel happened after that. But so we don't we've got a, a guess of where the Tower of Babel was, but it's probably Babylon. It's probably the same the same rebellion year after year. And then all the way back in the book of Revelation, Babylon is this woman, and she's extremely in, you know, in the vision that John sees, and she's just this filthy, disgusting woman. Um, in, her, in her hand, she holds a cup, which she is drunk on the blood of the saints, of just killing Christians, in the, not really literally, but in the death, in the death of uh, just eating, eating the saints for lunch. Just, she's that evil, that level of wickedness. And so when there's a prophecy and a judgment against Babylon... And you know, start to finish in the scripture, Babylon is bad. There's nothing good about it. Um, you know this is going to be bad, right? So 13, verse 3, I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and I have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. He's actually talking about Babylon. They're proudly exalting in a bad way. They're not proudly exalting with the glory of God. They're proudly exalting with their own glory, with their own pride. He says, The sound of a tumult is on the mountains like a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. The Lord is basically saying, I'm putting together an army um, God does not want to do this. He does not desire that they, that they kill and pillage like this. He is basically sending this nation, who he has allowed in, this is really crazy, he's given them freedom to make their own decisions, to worship whatever they want to worship, and they've chosen to not worship him. He wants to discipline Israel because they are seeking after false gods. He gave Israel freedom to seek after whatever God they wanted. He didn't make them robots that they have to follow him. He, he gave them freedom. And now the consequences of that are that this evil nation is going to conquer this evil nation. There are other places in Isaiah where he says, if you guys would just cry out to me, I would totally rescue you. If you call on my name, I will help you out. But as long as you're calling on other people's names... I'm going to let them help you. And unfortunately, what Israel is calling on doesn't exist. So no help comes. Does that make sense? It's like uh, when our kids were growing up and we'd tell them about 911. We'd say, okay, if something bad happens, what do you do? And they said, we call 991. And it was cute and it was funny at first. And then we realized, oh my gosh, like if... If one of us falls down the stairs and we can't get to the phone, our kids are going to pick up the phone and dial 991 and no help is going to come, right? Well, that's where Israel was. They were calling out to the Ashtaroths and to the Baals. They were going to Egypt for rescue. They were going to Assyria for rescue. When Egypt was attacking, they were going to Egypt when Assyria... I mean, they, they just couldn't make up their mind. And the whole time Isaiah is saying, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven is here for you. Call on his name. And they wouldn't do it. So it goes on, and um, 
He talks about how terrible it's going to be in um, verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make a land of desolation and destroy its sinners from it. Stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. He's saying, whatever little glimmer of hope you have is going to be wiped out when the Babylonians come. When these armies come, and uh, he's just emphasizing how terrible it's going to be. All right. Then, have we had enough of 13? Like I said, you, you read it, you digest it, it's done, then you move on to your sliced carrots. Chapter 14. If you have your little heading, you might get excited because it says the restoration of Jacob. And you're like, good. But it's not exactly that because sometimes those headings only cover the next verse or two, right? Um, The Lord will have compassion on Jacob, will again choose Israel, will set them in the hand of their own land. And sojourners, you might have the word sojourners or travelers or aliens will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. The people will take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. Okay, so it's starting to sound good, and then you get a little bit of a flip there. In the midst of all this terror, it's going to be so awful, you're not even going to be able to see the stars in the sky. You're not even going to see the the light of the sun because the, the terror that's coming But at some point, he gives that little hint, everybody's going to come to Jacob and worship him. The house of Israel, right? Whenever he says Jacob, he means Israel. He means God's chosen people. Everybody's going to come, and they're going to be a part of it. And the whole business of uh, being slaves, it's that Israel was in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And they, they couldn't even decide who they could marry. They couldn't even make their own choice of what they could eat. And this is just saying, you're going to rule. You're going to be in charge. You're, you're, going, to be, you're going to rule over everybody. And then it goes back to telling Babylon what's going to happen to it. So what, how this fits into things is, Babylon, you're going to come and you're going to discipline Israel. But don't be proud because you're doing it because you're wicked. And they were wicked, but you're more wicked, and that's why you conquered them. So now you're going to get yours, Babylon. And um, that's what all, verse 5, down goes. Um, it's really wild to listen to this, you know, with an audio Bible. Because it does sound so crazy, and you can get, I'll get, I'll drive in my car, and I'll listen to the audio Bible while I drive, and I'll get distracted for a minute. And then I'll come back and I'll hear um, like verse 11. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid like a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. You're like, what? what was he even talking about? I encourage you, when you're reading the Bible and you hit a thing like that and you're, you've been distracted and you've been off and you're like, what, what, is that? what was that about? Don't just keep going. Stop, take a minute, and look back up to figure out what the context of that is. Because that sounds horrible, right? What is he talking about? What is, what is going on? And, um, and it is, as you go backwards, it's, it's God's vengeance 
for the sake of his people against the destroyer. And I say it vague like that because what comes next is obviously not about Babylon. So 14 verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. So the stars of God, 90% of the time in the scripture are the angels. That's what they're talking about when they say the stars of God. So here is a being that said to himself, I will ascend to heaven. I will be above the angels of God. Well, there's only one being that had enough nerve that wasn't already above all of God's angels to say, I will ascend and I will become over all of the angels, right? And that's the devil. That's Satan. I will, so now we know, okay, he's not talking about the king of Babylon anymore. He's talking about the devil. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the, heaven, the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Wow. Like what, what blatant and rude blasphemy that is, right? This is the same thing that the devil told Adam and Eve in the garden. That if you eat this apple, you will be like God. You will have knowledge of good and evil. And so not only is he trying to ascend to this throne himself, but he was trying to tempt Adam and Eve to try to do it too. That's how blasphemous the devil is. But... That's not going to happen. Verse 15, you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. This is the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home. Throughout Scripture, it happens a lot. And this is kind of, um, you know, with my uncle passing away and, and having conversations with my cousins and talking a lot about life after death and you know where do we go when we die and what happens. Throughout Scripture, there is this thing, I don't, I don't understand it completely, where we will enjoy a feast, that we will, we will have a delightful thing and we will be able to look on our enemies as they're suffering in their, in their, and it, and it won't be bad. Does that make sense? There's something about it when all sin is taken away from us, when all revenge, bitterness, hostility, and we will see the purity of God and how holy and righteous he is. And there will be the devil because we don't fight against flesh and blood, Right? It's not that I'm going to be in heaven, you know, uh, eating fried chicken and watching Chuck Jones suffer because Chuck Jones was my enemy. And I'll be like, ha, 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 pass me another biscuit. Because Chuck Jones isn't my enemy. We don't fight. It says in Ephesians, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but of powers and principalities in this dark world. So we're going to look at God. We're going to be there with God. 
in all of his holiness and purity, and we will look at the devil in his blasphemy and his shame, and we will see him be ruined and condemned, and we will be delighted. We will, we will be joyful that all sin and all evil will be destroyed forever. Um, death is also in that. If you ever hear somebody say, death is your friend, say, it's fine that you believe that. That's not what the Bible says. The death is, uh, death is going to be in a hole and we're all going to be rejoicing that it's destroyed forever. How do you like that? And then we'll say, pass me a biscuit. Skip down. Um, so it's really good. Again, take this in little portions. If it seems weird, go backwards and look at it in the context to realize he's not talking about the king of Babylon anymore, right? He's talking about the devil. And he's going to have victory over the devil and destroy the devil. And it's going to be awesome. In Throughout 14, there are other oracles against these other nations. And if you sit down with the map, you can see where they are and how close they are to Israel and, and the, the problems that they're going to bring on Israel. He covers Assyria. He covers Philistia, which is over next to Assyria. Uh, then go down to chapter 16. And there's no heading. There's nothing to let you know that something changed. But remember, if you're reading it in slow motion, you'll stumble across this and you'll just be like, oh my gosh, I found a jewel in here. He's talking about all this horrible stuff that's going to happen to Moab and destruction and curses. And then verse, chapter 16, verse 1, he says, send the lamb to the ruler of the land. Oh, that's interesting. All right. Get your radar on. From Selah, by way of the desert, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. All of a sudden, God is having compassion on Moab that has been suffering. And Moab would come and attack Israel. Israel would have a chance to draw near to God, and God would rescue them, but they didn't. And so Moab wins, and then God punishes Moab. But there's just a few little folks in Moab left, and they are faithful. And they are actually calling on the name of the Lord. He says they're like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest. So in 16.3, God gives instructions to Israel. Here's what you do with Moab. Listen to these instructions. Give them counsel. Grant them justice. Make your shade like night at the height of, the, of noon. So make your shade like night at the height of noon. They didn't have air conditioning. They didn't have, uh, right? They didn't have HVAC. So at high noon, if you're a refugee and you're fleeing, you've got nothing to protect you. Kind of like um, if you're downtown ever, and it's one of these unseasonably warm days in January. And it's 60 degrees or it's 70 degrees. And you see the guy walking down the street that's got four sleeping bags and he's got a big old winter coat on. And you're like, what is the deal with that guy? Well, he's homeless, right? 
And just because there's one warm day, he's not going to give up his five winter coats that he has to sleep in. He needs shelter. And so he, God is saying to them, you be like shade, like night at the height of noon. That is just tremendous relief, right? If you were out, if you were a refugee, if you're a foreigner and all your people have been destroyed and you're on the run, but you're crying, you are some of the, the minuscule remnant that's faithful to the Lord at high noon to find something that would be shade you like it's nighttime would be everything, would be great. Shelter the outcasts. Do not reveal the fugitive. How do you like that? That's in the Bible. Shelter outcasts. Do not reveal the fugitive. Uh, just after the Civil War, there was controversy because there were slaves that were freed and they were on the run. But some people thought that they were still property and that they should be arrested and they should be sent back to their slave owners, even though slavery had been abolished. And in the Southern Baptist Church, there was a controversy because some of the Southern Baptists said, we need to protect these people. We need to shelter them. We need to help them get to freedom. There were other Southern Baptists that said, we need to obey the laws of the land. And if they are a fugitive slave and they're illegal, they need to be arrested and sent back. Does this sound familiar? Are we not in the same kind of tumult right now? And so, of course, what did they do? They split. And you had the Southern Baptists that we still have. And they had a, this is an actual denomination called the Lying Southern Baptists. And the lie, I, I wish I had a sign that said that. That would just be perfect. The Lying Southern Baptists were called that because when the guys came to their house and said, are you hiding slaves? They would lie. And they would say, no, there are no slaves here. But to them, they were being honest because the slaves had been freed. See how that works? Isn't that funny? Um, I have a buddy, and he has a quilt hanging on the side, one of these quilt squares on the side of a barn. And in the middle is a black square. And the women used to hang up their quilts to dry. And if there was a black square in the middle of that quilt, that was a signal to a runaway slave that that house was safe for you. That there were some lying Baptists there that would protect you. And um, just really cool. That was, you know, in America, in the 1800s. Here it is, Isaiah telling Israel, Moab has done terrible things to you. you get, Moab is coming. They're going to do terrible things to you. But if you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. They don't call on the name of the Lord. Moab comes, destroys them. Moab goes back home. God says, Moab should not be so evil as destroy you, even if you're not calling on my name. That was too much. So he destroys Moab. There's a few people. Maybe they carried something off from Israel and they learned about the Lord. Maybe while they were in Israel, they learned about the Lord while they're you know, destroying everything. Somehow there's some Moabites that called on the name of the Lord. And so now God says, Israel, here's how you take care of them. 
Let the, this is a, a verse four, chapter 16, verse 4. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Sojourn is a funny word. It's basically be a refugee, um, travel through, be around, but they're, they're, they're outsiders, right? Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. Wow. When the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Isn't Isaiah crazy? Because he went from current events with Israel and Moab to this message about justice to proclaiming the Messiah. Here's what the end of the world's going to be like. Here's, here's what the Messiah's reign. When the Messiah is among you, the oppressor will be no more. Destruction will cease. He who tramples underfoot will vanish from the land. Remember, he's not talking about some big bad giant that's just killing everybody. He's talking about the devil who empowers these armies, who stokes up violence and rage and anger in these armies. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love. In God's love for us. Because God could just wipe everything out. He could do another Noah flood. He could do another Sodom and Gomorrah. But there's this rem- he's always holding out. He's always giving freedom for this little remnant that's going to seek after him. And on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. The day that all this is going to be straightened out and it's going to be Jesus. It's going to be him. That's all hidden in the middle of chapter 16. That's just verses 1 through 5 is all we just did. All right, now we're going to skip, and we're going to skip, and we're going to skip all the way to 19. Um, there are more prophecies in here, and it's, I hate to say more of the same, and I don't want to downplay it, but it is. These terrible things are going to happen to you, Israel. Call on the name of the Lord. Israel doesn't call on the name of the Lord and these terrible armies come. Um, there was one of these. Is the right one yet? Oh, nope, it's coming up. All right. Chapter 19. So remember I said Egypt and Babylon, all these terrible cities. They're always looked down upon. God's, Isaiah is giving all these curses and all these terrible things are going to happen. Look at 1916. It'll be easy to remember, right? Sounds like a year. 1916. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. I was talking to some guys this week, and we were like, this verse will never go on a church sign. (laughs) You'd be in big trouble. What's he saying? Well, remember the culture at this time. There were no women that were fighters, all the men, there were men whose full-time, way more full-time soldiers than there are nowadays. And um, so when he says that, he's, he's talking about the, the way their culture was, okay? They're going to be powerless. The Egyptians will just be absolutely powerless. 
The land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. And everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. He's saying there's going to be a day. Egypt is coming and they're going to destroy all this stuff and they've been terrible forever. But there's a day that's coming that if you say the word Israel in the land of Egypt, they'll all be terrified and scared. Wow. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the City of Destruction. And it's capital C, capital D. Where do you live? I live in the City of Destruction. But we're a city that has vowed its alliance to the God of, the God of heaven, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh God. There will be five cities in Egypt that will worship the Lord. If you, what, what if we did that as our foreign aid policy where we um, marched into Egypt today and we said, we're looking for the five cities that pledge allegiance to Israel, right? It seems totally far away for us to even think of that today with the Palestinians and Muslims and Arabs and Christians and Jews and all that fighting. Well, it was even crazier then. It was even more out of this world for him to say this. Verse 19, listen to what he says. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. So God is going to have such a presence among people that are so wicked and evil that they would imprison Israel for 400 years, God's going to work in them that there will be monuments, that there will be altars, that there will be pillars and columns dedicated to the Lord. This is just a little hint of when Jesus would come and he would go to Samaria and he would go speak to the Greeks and how Paul would go to the Greeks that God wants all nations to worship him. And he will. he will. He will rescue people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. No matter how evil and wicked that nation has been, he will save them. The Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. The Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship and sacrifice and offering. Egypt is going to worship God. Wow. They'll make vows to the Lord and perform them. And... Um, he will strike and heal. They will return to the Lord. So here's Israel. Let's see. Here's Israel. Here's Egypt. Up here to the, to the northeast is Assyria. So whenever Assyria would attack Israel, Israel would run to Egypt for help. Whenever Egypt would attack Israel, Israel would run to Assyria for help. They were supposed to run to God. And God would protect them all over. Egypt has attacked. God's saying, there's going to be a day where people in Egypt are going to worship you, worship Yahweh. And, verse 23, in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come to Egypt, and Egypt will come to Assyria. So what's the highway? Israel. And they're all going to worship. The Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And they're all going to worship the Lord of hosts, the true God, Yahweh. 
What, what an incredible miracle that will be. Think of today, and I'm, I'm not a fearful person and I'm not somebody that finds all these enemies of the church all over the place, but the fact that God is going to rescue and save entire nations as evil as Egypt and Assyria were to Israel in that day, God is going to have mercy on sinners that have opposed him, that are going to turn back to him, and he'll show them mercy, and they'll follow him and worship him. Um, At the very end, he says, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. For God to say those things, for the For the Jewish people to hear Isaiah in the king's court say that Assyria is the work of God's hands and that Egypt is my people, right? Everybody always thinks Israel is my people. Isaiah just said Egypt is my people. You can see where they would be really, you can see why Isaiah would end up getting sawed in half because he was hated so bad. But this is what God's telling them. This is how God is reaching out to them. Um, Israel, if you would just worship me and not depend on yourself, I would rescue you from all nations and all nations would come to him. In John 3, when Nicodemus comes at night and Nicodemus is confused about how, how are even the Gentiles and Jesus says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, all nations will come to him. Anything that we're lifting up, anything that we're exalting, anything that we're glorifying that's not Jesus is not going to bring in people like Jesus wants to bring people in. We can make all kinds of things great. Uh, When we were in Central Asia, there were all kinds of people that wanted to learn how to do business like Americans do business because Americans do business the best and teach me how to do business that way. And it was very tempting to lift that up and to be the know-it-all of business. So you get all kinds of people following you and excited about you and make a whole bunch of friends. But that wouldn't last, right? That wouldn't, that wouldn't bring everybody that Jesus wants to bring. So, take it in little bites. Read it in slow motion. Review things and look around. I got one more, I got one more funny, weird thing that pops out When you're just reading along and chapter 20. In the year that the commander in chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. All right. So just that one verse. Hold on. Um, It's awesome to have a study Bible or a timeline or a history guide to dig into what all that means. Is there any historical evidence of this you know we've been reading about Isaiah saying all these terrible things are going to happen and the stars aren't even going to shine at night and you're going to uh, long for a break like a hired worker waits three years and you're like what does all that mean well okay so just straight up history this battle um, the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon the king of Assyria came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it How terrible is that? Well, here's how terrible it is. Uh, There's an archaeological dig in Ashdod 
dated from around this, around this time, and they found a mass grave of 3,000 people. So there was some sort of massive massacre, um, just some terrible, horrible thing, that they would have 3,000 people buried all in one place. So that, that's just to get the magnitude, um, not from Isaiah's language, but from an archaeological dig of how terrible these guys were and how horrible these, these armies would go and, um, and just not, not listen to anybody and not stop and not care. In the year that happened, in another city, the Lord spoke to Isaiah, the son of Amoz, and he said, Go, take the sackcloth off of your waist, take the sandals off of your feet, and he did so walking around naked and barefoot. So I was talking to a guy this week, and we were talking about this crazy thing. Um, there, in Jesus' day, modesty was way a lot more lax than it is today. Like, if, if we time traveled and we went back there, every one of us would have so many layers of clothing on right now compared to what they wore then people would look at us like we were crazy. Um, and people just walked around naked in Jesus' day. And that was a thing, and, and it, was, it was... But for somebody to be dressed up and to show a part of their nakedness was a huge embarrassment and a huge shame. So for Isaiah to basically walk around with no pants on and no shoes, but just a shirt is, is a, a huge shame on him. There's another thing about Jewish culture in this day that's really different than our culture today. Um, I want to find the right way to say this. In our culture today, if there's a naked person, we say shame on them. They are despicable showing their nakedness like that. In Jewish culture... You have pity on that person, shame on anybody that looks. Isn't that wild? So it's not, um, in our culture, it, the, it's almost honorable for people to gawk and to look at and what they see. And the shame is on, if there's any shame involved, which there should be, but sometimes there isn't. If there's shame involved, it's on the naked person. In Jewish culture, the shame would be on, shame on you for looking kind of thing. That person needs to be covered. So you have pity on the naked person and shame on the looker. And so here's Isaiah being told, the Lord says, Isaiah, you're going to walk around pantless and shoeless. And so he does. That would have made people, if they were doing right, have pity on him. Oh, poor Isaiah. Gosh, this poor guy. And they would not have looked at him because it would have been shameful for them to look at him. This same thing happens, um, gosh, I think it's in Joshua, where they send a delegation. They send a delegation to a, a, an enemy, and the enemy strips all the pants off of all the guys, shaves all their beards off, and sends them home. And it's just a total shameful embarrassment that these guys come back uh, pantless, 
pantless and beardless, right? And Joshua even makes a provision to them to live in this little village in secret while their beards grow back and they get their clothes back on and stuff. So it is, it is a real embarrassing, shameful thing. So that's, that's chapter 20, verse 2. Chapter 20, verse 3. Then the Lord said, Like my servant Isaiah has walked around naked and barefoot for three years. What? Between verse 2 and verse 3, three years go by. Isaiah did that. Isaiah obeyed the Lord and walked around in this shame for three years. The Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt." So it's all a sign. This is how shameful you guys are all going to be dragged away. All right, so there was a situation I was in where I knew I was going to be around some really, I'll just say, some really weird people. And um, some really objectionable people that believed things way different than I believed. And I knew that they were going to be really open and really flagrant about what they what they thought and what they believed, and there was going to be some awkwardness and there was going to be some weirdness. And I thought about this. And I thought about how Isaiah endured shame for three years. You know, Jesus hung on the cross, and uh, despite what all the movies and all the paintings show, he was probably completely naked on that cross. And he endured shame. And so before I went into the situation, I just resolved and I prayed and I said, God, if Isaiah can endure shame and embarrassment at this, I'm, no, I'm not going to be embarrassed anywhere near the level of Isaiah, right? Everything's going to be covered. We're not going to have any of that embarrassment. I can walk into this situation not afraid of shame or embarrassment. If Jesus hung on the cross completely naked in front of the sunshine, and everybody that wanted to look, I can endure some shame. So then, the next thing, the Lord you know, gives you boldness and strengthens you. And then the prayer becomes, Lord, I want to out-weird all of these weird people. If this person's going to be so offensive that they're going to talk about their personal life and all this and not worry about offending me, I'm going to talk about Jesus I'm going to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, and I'm not going to be afraid of it embarrassing them. And I, I don't know about you, but I know for me, too often, I am not brazen about Jesus. I am not uh, so, un, I mean, you know, how many workplaces today you watch the video about sexual harassment, and here's all the word, things you're not allowed to discuss and here's all the things you're not allowed to talk about in the workplace. And you sign the paper that you won't talk about it. And then you go into the kitchen and everybody's doing it, right? Well, okay. If the game is set, that we're going to violate all this stuff. And we're going to talk about our personal lives. And we're going to talk about politics. I'm going to talk about religion. And let's be bold and not be afraid. 
God's not going to ask us to walk around pantless for three years. Pretty confident of that. So we can be weird. We can be bold. We can be strange. And all of that pays off. Um, I'll, I'll tell you uh, a little bit of what happened in that situation was I was already looking for a way to talk about the Holy Spirit. I was already looking about ways to talk about Jesus and his healing and his forgiveness because I wasn't afraid of how I could hide it to avoid embarrassment. And, you know, all of that opens doors and all of that establishes, you know, I say something to somebody and they're like, okay, we're going to talk weird at this level. And all of a sudden they have questions that they never would have asked me because there are questions about weird spiritual things, you know, healings, miracles, visions. Um, and I get, to, I get to guide them to the scripture and all that because of the weirdness. So with all that said, um, Isaiah is a hard book. There's a lot of just nuts all over the place in here. But if we keep plugging away in little bits, take little bites at a time, keep our green beans away from our carrots, um, we can come across these treasures like taking care of of wanderers and the sojourners being a shelter for them, crying out to the Lord and knowing with confidence that the Lord's going to have victory over our enemies and that our enemies aren't Chuck Jones, but it's the devil. And he's going to be cast down and we're going we're to celebrate and rejoice in a just pure, pure, holy way over our enemy. And that, that's all our enemy that we have to worry about. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you are such a king of such a kingdom that we can trust and rely on you. Lord, we don't want to depend on any other thing. We don't want to make the mistake that Israel made when they depended on Egypt or they depended on Assyria and all that. We just want to run straight to you, Lord. We want to do it with boldness and confidence of your steadfast love. And we look forward to see how you will deliver us from whatever we're fighting today. Because you don't change. And your love is the same yesterday and today and forever. We praise your holy name, Lord. Amen.